I have a black jacket that hangs at the very end of my closet that serves as a reminder to me, Stephen, don't invest in things that will not last. I was in college. I was traveling overseas one time when I stopped at a market that sold all sorts of name brand items. Well, actually, I should note, it was clothes that had name brands printed on them, but they were not name brand items. So in a desire to be cool, while also having the budget of a college student, I bought a good-looking at the time North Face jacket for the equivalent of probably five to seven dollars today. And I got my five to seven dollars worth, you could say. Sure, it looked the part for, some, for a little while, though it was not long before most of the threads on the logo started to come out. I've always been bothered with one thing whenever I'd put it on and try to make it work that like one sleeve seemed about half an inch longer than the other. And the quality of the jacket is just substandard. Yet it remains hanging there at the end of my closet. I guess it serves as a reminder, Stephen, don't put your money in things that will not last. And I think that's what Jesus would have for us today. What I'm going to argue from Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 16 is for you to aim your heart and your money towards everlasting joy. Let me say this again. Aim your heart and your money towards everlasting joy. I invite you to read as I follow, or follow along as I read, excuse me, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. This is Jesus that is spoken of in verse 1 when it says, He, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the accounts of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have, yeah, excuse me, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. May God write these truths of his word upon our hearts and grip us with the glory of Christ this morning. This passage is really quite easy to understand. There's not much for me to say about it at all. I say that jokingly. This is actually a very difficult to understand parable of Jesus's. Sometimes we read it and we think it commends dishonesty, even transgressing against and stealing from one's employer. And so what you have, though, is, is we're going to work through this, but you have this parable, and then Jesus, in the second part of our text today, he kind of undergirds it with foundational truths about our hearts and our money that will help us to, that, that will take the truth of the parable and cause it to seep down deep within our hearts. So the parable in verses 1 to 9 instructs us to keep eternity at the forefront of our minds as we handle money. If you look at verse 1, you see Jesus is addressing disciples of his, people who are following him, like many of you and I, or many of us. And at the outset of chapter 16, Jesus is building on what he has previously illustrated in Luke chapter 15. If you're familiar, if you remember sermons from the last couple of weeks, and just by note, if you're visiting with us, you're like, oh, I got here on Money Sunday. We just go expositionally, verse by verse through the Bible. And so last week was the parable of the prodigal son. You missed a really good one last week. This week we get to money. But anyway, uh, uh, Jesus has taught and he's shown how God is relentless in pursuing people who are not his, who do not know him, who are lost and need to be found, who are dead and need to be made alive. And so, what Jesus is now coming to is that as we see over and over again Jesus' power to lift burdens, to wipe away tears, to make the broken whole, to forgive sinners, people who realize their need for Him are flocking to Him. And He is exhibit A that God is unrelentingly determined to pursue those who are lost and must be found. So now, what is our role in this? I think this is what Jesus is addressing as he now turns and starts to address his disciples. As you have a God who is doggedly determined to pursue after the blind, the spiritually blind, the spiritually dead, the spiritually lost, and give them new birth. And you have disciples who see God's power in doing this. That's us. We, we see, we rejoice when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, when they are what the Bible calls born again, given new birth. What is our role in this work of God as disciples of Jesus? This is what Jesus is showing us. The passage does not answer this question exhaustively, but it does answer with a central responsibility that we have as followers of Christ, namely from a standpoint of money. And so it's fitting driving this sermon down the road for me to pull off to the side now. Pull off and explain something. So, Jesus is addressing those who would follow him, and the topic is money. But on a more foundational level, the topic is actually our hearts. And he is helping us to see how to orient our lives around this single, all-encompassing goal of him being the supreme treasure and joy of our souls, of our hearts of those around us. And so you might think, okay, why is Jesus talking about money? But it's actually not that weird because Jesus is determined to lead our hearts towards joyful trust in him. 
So he tells a parable of a business manager who was being let go by his boss. He's worried about what would happen to him if paychecks stopped. So he begins cutting deals with clients before he loses his job as a way of accumulating favor, uh, a way of, 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 of putting a moral responsibility of those whose debts he cut that, they would be, uh, that he would be entitled to call upon favors from them down the road. And these, 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 these costs, these debts that he was slashing in half or, or slashing at a quarter, they were significant. Sometimes the, the weights and measures and the, the, the oil and the wheat and all that, we get lost in how much it is. A lot of these were, uh, were, were cuts in debt of what would be the equivalent in our day of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Somebody came to you and said, hey, I'm going to cut half a million dollars of your debt out of the picture. You might be beholden to them. That is what this dishonest manager is doing. And so Jesus summarizes the point of the parable in verses 8 and 9. Look at this. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And you might think, as I thought whenever I first read this, you might think, is Jesus saying this guy acted admirably in cutting down these debts? Is he saying that it is appropriate that this man stole from his employer? So the point of the passage here is to go steal from my employer? No, if you look closely, Jesus is not telling us to copy the man's behavior, but he's telling us to copy the man's foresight. He knew he was about to be fired, so he immediately starts making plans for his provision after he is fired. Jesus calls us as his disciples to live with foresight towards what is to come. Namely, to look to the day when our money, our wealth, our provision will be cut off. Namely, what he's getting at is here, look to the day when you have entered into eternity, when you have left this life. You see, verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. We'll get to what that means in a moment. So that when it fails, they may receive you what? Into eternal dwelling. So that's where we get this. He's looking today with our money towards eternity, towards the next life. They may receive you into eternal dwellings. All right, you tracking with me? So this forces us to explore what is unrighteous wealth? Is that the money that I've stolen? The money I've accrued in an unethical manner? In a shady, cooking the books kind of way? No, in its original language, the word doesn't mean anything gained unethically or cutting corners or breaking rules. It simply describes wealth, money, income, provision that you have in this world, in this life. Stuff you have here and now that you're not going to take with you into the glories of the presence of Christ. So you have make friends by your money so they receive you into eternal dwellings. And you have two very distinct settings. This life and eternal dwellings, and how, do, how, how money influences what's, what goes from one to the other. Jesus is saying, spend of yourself in this life for the purpose that others might hear the gospel, that they might receive new birth, that they might be part of the welcoming committee welcoming you into heaven. Do you get that? 
You see that? Now that, now that we think about it, okay, yeah, that they might welcome you into eternal dwellings. Have foresight towards this purpose. This is staggering. Yes, Jesus is saying, invest in the future. But he's saying, invest not that you might experience the, the return of, of rewards or, or, or the return of your investment in 20, 40, 60 years, and then you enjoy it for a little while, and then poof, you're gone in this life. No, he's saying this is, this is far too small. He's saying, I want you to look 20,000 years down the road. I want you to look 400,000 years down the road. I want you to look 6 trillion years down the road and invest your heart in that. All right, I'm going to pull the car off the road again. Inevitably, when we read passages or when we, we, we see what Jesus talks about with money, and Jesus talks about it a lot, we might think, okay, okay, I'm tracking with you, Jesus, a little bit, but how much do you want me to give? What are you getting at? Just tell me. I'll make the arrangements. I'll adjust the budget. I'll take care of it. Just, just what do you want me to do here, Jesus? Or you think, wait, is Jesus telling me, okay, don't save for retirement. Don't pay for the kids' college. Don't take the family on vacation. Is that, what, is that what you're getting at here, Jesus? And we start to ask all sorts of questions, as if we are legal experts trying to get the client, our heart, off on a technicality. But here's what Jesus does, is he recognizes the direct connection of our hearts to our money. So he doesn't prescribe a direct amount. He says, I want your heart. I don't want you to say, I give a little here and the rest is mine. In fact, that would be wrong. You could give 50% of your income towards charitable purposes, towards the ministry of the church, towards the advance of the gospel. You could give 50% of it, but then if you say, all right, and 50% is a lot. And then you say, okay, the other 50% is mine. You can't touch it. It is mine. I'm going to do with it what I want. And you're wrong. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He wants our hearts. Okay, driving the car back onto the road now. So he's saying, invest your heart, invest your money in what will last in that new eternal dwelling. And so we ask our question, okay, how do I do that? How do I invest in 400,000 year, years down the road into eternal dwellings that I want to be welcomed into? We've got a few suggestions. A fitting investment would be to regularly have in your home or take to dinner the new couple who moved into your neighborhood and you want to introduce them to Jesus. You want them to hear the gospel. Hear how he can give them life. How he can turn their mourning into gladness. You would like to see them approach you one day in heaven with tears in their eyes and say, because of the hospitality that you have, your door always being open to us. Your listening ear always listening to us. Because of this, we are here worshiping Jesus. And we are thankful for you. A fitting investment would be given generously towards the sake of the work of the gospel in our local church because you want the gospel to continue to be proclaimed to the church in generations to come in situate. Do you know, there's a few of you in this room, that you have become Christians through the ministry of this church. And this church is approximately 200 years old. It is, according to a passage like this, Highly likely that you will run into, in heaven, members of this church from a century, 150 years ago, who you say thank you for your ministry and helping to establish that church 
It is there that I heard the gospel and that I was born again. How great would it be, to be for us to be approached in glory by someone would, who would say, hey, you know that work you guys did in replanting First Baptist Church in the early 2020s? Your perseverance in the middle of that pandemic, your perseverance in those days of small things. I, you, know, you know I heard the gospel at First Baptist Church in a sermon preached in August of the year 2489, and I was born again because you guys did not let that church die. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? I tear up even thinking about it. Perhaps a fitting investment would be to give towards a work that is sending missionaries or translating the Bible into languages for peoples who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if one day in heaven a whole tribe from the Amazon rainforest or an island nation in Southeast Asia approached you and with great gratitude said, we are here. Do you know it was your generosity that funded a translation of the gospel of John into our native tongue? And for all of eternity, when you see any of us, you will be met with gratefulness and thanksgiving to God. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's orienting our perspective towards recognizing that everything about us is marching towards the glory of his great reign over his creation. You know, if you're not real sure of Christianity or you have questions about it or even, you know, I, I, I'm always, if I can be honest, I, I am personally kind of uneasy. I, I don't feel like I preach about money a lot, but we're in a section of Luke where money's a prominent topic. And I just don't want people to think, oh yeah, there, there, there's Stephen. Yeah, there's, like, he, he wants to line his pockets. He wants, he, you know, and, and so you, you might be skeptical like that. Yep, all preachers, they're, they're, all, about, they're all about lining their pockets. They're all about, it's, it's a financial incentive for them. Well, if that's the case, I, I don't care what you think about me. You can, you, can think, you can think I'm a shyster. You can think I'm a con man. You can think whatever. That's fine. I just want to urge you, like, like if you're skeptical towards this, just consider the words of Jesus here. That's all I'm trying to present. And consider the words of Jesus and how he might grab your heart and he might cause you to see that life is more than what is right before you right now. And in fact, you are marching at full speed towards an eternity where what your heart treasures now will dictate what your heart sees and knows for eternity. And so give consideration to what he is showing here. So I encourage you to do that. Will you do that with me? Okay. So Jesus says... You can have these things. You can invest yourself in building eternal dwellings. Or you can sit looking back longingly at the luxuries that you sought in this life and realize the error of trying to make your own heaven on earth here without sight to the heaven to come. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, so the big argument of the parable, keep that in mind, keep eternity in mind as you think through how you approach your money, as you plan for the future. Now we're going to undergird it with these two foundational truths that will hopefully anchor our hearts towards what he's saying to us, okay? So the first reason, do this, keep this in mind, 
verses 10 to 12 show us, for the sake of your eternal joy. Jesus builds on this, and he graciously notes how your eternal joy is tied to how you approach money and leverage it for the sake of gospel advancement. This is wild. I, I, sometimes I'm reading and I'm preparing a passage or I'm reading through it, even my own personal time in God's Word, and, and I, 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 I'll read over something. I'll be like, did that say, say what I think it said? Hold on, let's rewind. Okay, restart it. Oh, oh okay, I've got to rewind again. Listen to what Jesus said. This is, this is wild, and it's so subtle you might miss it if you just are reading over it casually and you're just kind of coasting through. He ties our faithfulness to, to how we use money for his glory to its effects in eternity, but he, he ties it here in verses 10 to 12, not to others, but to us. So you, in, in the parable that you might be welcomed by others who you spend it on, that they might come to know me. And now in this, he, he, he ties your heart to it. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And then here's the part I just can't get past in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And I see that and I pause and I say, oh, uh, Jesus, tell me more about these true riches. Because the riches of this life seem pretty appealing from where I'm standing. You're telling me there's something greater? There's something more? This is going to sound almost blasphemous. A fitting motivation, not the motivation, but a fitting motivation for your generosity in gospel proclamation is that Jesus seems to be implying that for those who give of themselves in this life, they are storing up treasures, they are storing up riches to be enjoyed in the life to come to the glory of God. No, I am not saying give of yourself here and you will... You will, you will receive promotions, you will receive bigger homes, you will receive sports cars, you will receive all these things in this life. But no, what Jesus is saying here is that there is a connection between one's sacrifice for one's wholehearted trust in the Lord in this life and the experience of the riches of their reward in the life to come, finding that Jesus Christ and his gospel advancement was all worth it as you sacrificed and even lived meagerly in this life. You see what he's getting at there, this true riches. Now, he's not saying you give in order to enter into heaven. But he is saying your experience of heaven will be in one sense intensified by your, by your trust in, he's saying, in me and how you approach money in this life. It's a similar principle you see across the board. Uh, the, 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 the missionary family that moves halfway across the world and, and, and endures great cost to themselves and, and, and great risk and, and, and sacrifices everything for the sake of making Jesus Christ known in a place where he is not yet known, they will understand and experience the glories and the riches and the reward of the presence of Christ in eternity in a way where that risk will be proven to be totally and entirely worth it. The martyr, the brother and sister of ours in the faith, who comes from a family who rejects Christianity and maybe their religion calls for the execution of those who apostatize from their faith, they who give their life literally as a martyr for the faith, having come to faith in Christ, they will find that their sacrifice was worth it as they enter into the glories of Christ. This is what Jesus is saying to us. You catch the connection here. I don't know, I don't know fully how it all works out. 
But I know that he is saying here, he's appealing to pursue faithfulness now and you will be entrusted with these true riches. I had a truly embarrassing moment in my life a few years ago. Um, I, I have a lot of embarrassing moments in my life. But here's one, and, and to share with you how embarrassing it is, what I'm about to share, um, normally if I have an illustration that I'm about to, uh, uh, or that I'm thinking about sharing in a sermon, I'll run it by Amanda, like, hey, what do you think about the, like, like the, I, I didn't run this one by her. I knew she would probably shoot it down, uh, but she's doing children's care today, so <laughs> somebody's on the loose. All right. I was in the middle of, and I hope this makes sense, Um, I was in the middle, I'm going to go to a point that I'm about to illustrate, I was in the middle of a dispute in my fantasy baseball league, all right, yeah, already embarrassing, okay, Uh, a friend of mine from college, uh, I felt had broken some rules at the very least in an unkind, unethical manner, bent some rules in our league, had been intentionally deceptive and deceitful towards me as well as a couple others, and I was really hot about it. And so another friend of ours from college was kind of trying to mediate the dispute, and so I'm text messaging this friend of mine, and I'm, uh, this guy that's mediating it, and I'm just saying, how could he do that, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm being quite honest in, in how I'm speaking about this other guy and what I think about him at the time. And then I realized, oh, I I sent that text message to my friend I was angry with. Have you ever done that? Send an email or a text message to somebody that you are talking about that you don't want them to see? Okay, maybe I'm not the only one. Okay, now you're saying, Stephen, what in the world does that have to do with money? Here's what it is. How you view money or how you view possessions or how you view your things, the things that, okay, these are mine. Jesus, I love you, I trust you, but, but you don't have claim over these. Or I'm, 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 I'm going re- to push back on what you're saying for my heart and trusting you and giving more generously and sacrificing of myself in a greater manner. How we view our money and our possessions is actually like the text message that we send that is honest about what we feel. You see, it's the honest message, not the message where we try to be more polite about somebody if we think that we are speaking to them. You, you get what I'm saying? In a message where somebody's mediating or, disp- or, or, or we're trying to be polite and all adults about it, I'll say, well, I think that he was really being like, I, I, I think he maybe didn't understand that he was uh, bothering us in this way. Or, or I'm trying to see it from his perspective, but no. What Jesus is saying is actually, How you handle your money is the true message of where your attitude is in regards to your trust in me. You can't sugarcoat it. You can't deny it. And that's, I think, a reason why he talks about money so much, because it gets to the heart of our trust or lack of trust in God. See, either money will enslave you by telling you that you need to stay save, that you need to be stingy, that you need to guard yourself because salvation is found in your financial security, or will, it will enslave you by making you promises, saying all you need in life is this, all you need to buy is this, all you need to do is acquire these things, and you will find what you are looking for, thinking salvation is found in the materialism or the possessions that you acquire. 
And Jesus takes us each by the hand as we look around us and wonder and worry about what our lives hold, wonder and worry whether, whether, whether we're going to have enough money to pay the bills, and he lifts our eyes to him and he, our, our, and he lifts our heads out of the dust and looks up to him and says, your money is a terrible master. Let it be a servant of your soul that you might give generously so that you can let go, let go of your tight grip of it and take hold of my promises of my love for you. And this really explains anything that we have strongly in our grip and say, I must have this in order to be happy. I must have this in order to trust you, God. It's not just money. It can be your health. You get a bad medical diagnosis. You say to yourself, okay, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't, I, I'm, I'm struggling with whether or not you're as good as I thought you once were. A relationship goes south. You feel disrespected by others. Your family enters into a season of chaos and turmoil. Your accomplishments that you desire, that you yearn for, whatever it is that you say, I must have this thing to be complete. Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, I want to pry your hands off of that thing and set your eyes upon me because that is where you will find it. That is where you will find your completion. That is where you will find your worth. So as, I, as you approach money, you, as you will either treasure it in a manner in which you idolize and it, it is your master. Or it will be your servant as you humbly open your hands towards me and you say, okay, Lord, I trust you. It will be your master or your servant, but it cannot be both. And there's something absolutely fascinating about this because this is where the wisdom of Jesus is greater than our wisdom. Because we hear these kind of things and, and, and it might be, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're thinking this or maybe not. You might, you might be um, uh, uh, lower uh, in, in income or, 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 or not as wealthy as others, and you might think, yeah, Jesus has given it to those rich people. They deserve it. Looking out for the little guy. But look at what Jesus says. Look again at verse 10. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Do you see that? He's saying you can be greedy, you can be unfaithful, having a lot of money or having a little money. It's in your heart towards it. And so he looks at us, and he says, I will not let this be your master. I, your Lord, will not become subordinate to that and yield myself to your desires that I serve you in the way that you think I should. It's astonishing, really. Jesus ties our attitude towards money, towards our eternal joy. And I suppose in context, this is understandable because he also reveals and serves one last caution towards our souls. And this is in verse 13, the second pillar that we build this on. And that is, for the sake of your souls... For the sake of your souls. So, he instructs us to keep eternity at the forefront of our mind as we handle our money. A, for our eternal joy, and then B, for the sake of our souls. And just listen to verse 13. I'm just quoting Jesus straight up here. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Has it ever dawned on you that Jesus probably knows your heart, and, and he knows my heart better than I know my heart, or, knows, or you know your heart? That's a staggering thought if you really think about it. There's a musician, a, 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 a ragtime musician and concert pianist by the name of Bob Milne. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. Milne or Milne? I don't know. He has a mind 
that both confuses and confounds neuroscientists and brilliant experts of the human mind. Bob Milne is able to play multiple songs at varying speeds all at once on a piano. One on one hand, one on the other hand. And he can do all this while holding a conversation with someone there at the piano. And he can do it with different beats, different timing. I don't know a lot of musical terminology. I, I trust you guys understand what I'm saying here. Starting one song and then waiting 15 seconds and starting another. And so like he's in different parts of each song. And he can do all this while he is having a conversation with other people that are around him. Literally, literally neuroscientists at Penn State University have done studies on him and are just confounded that he has this ability. They say he is doing things with his brain that it is impossible for the human brain to do. The left brain and the right brain are both working at the same time together when apparently they can't do that. I just want half of my brain to work sometime, much less all of it. But we know that with our minds. If I asked you to play two different songs on the piano at the same time of different tempos, different paces, different styles, you'd be like, Stephen, that's ridiculous. I can't do that. We know that with our minds, but we're slow to learn it with our hearts. Think about how carefully, think about, as we think about our minds, how carefully do you guard your calendar? Do you ever make scheduling commitments that you look at your calendar and when you put it on your calendar, you're like, okay, I can do that again. It's going to be a slightly busy week, but I think I can squeeze it in. And then you get to that week and you're pulling your hair out and you're going crazy saying, how did I overschedule myself so much? Why did I do this? I'm never going to put these burdens upon myself ever again. But with our hearts, we don't realize that we cannot handle near as much as we think we can. We like to have everything that we can, and yet our hearts are not like a valley where everything comes down and rests. Rather, our hearts are like the peak, the, the tip top of a mountain where only one thing can stand before other things start falling off. Listen to Jesus again in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is where perhaps we get to the point where you say, okay, Stephen, what do you want me to do with this? How do I apply this? Well, looking back at verse 8 and 9, use your unrighteous wealth for the sake of being welcomed into eternal dwellings. Remember, how you manage your money is not what gets you into heaven, but it actually reveals where your heaven really is. It reveals the true condition of your heart. Jesus was not a traveling televangelist with carefully coiffed hair with suits that cost thousands of dollars and a smile so bright that it reflected UV rays, all while trying to get others to give to him and give their money so that he could dwell in opulence. No, what was he? He was a crucified Savior who had nowhere to lay his head. And this is the point. He says to you, I give you my heart. My heart that was beaten, beaten, battered, crucified, tortured, ultimately died but was raised again and now resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father. Heart beating for you, interceding for you, lovingly caring for and looking down upon you. But in exchange for my heart, I get your heart. I get your heart. And the wonder of what we've seen so far in Luke chapter 16 is Jesus knows exactly where to go with our hearts. And that is why he has come for our wallets. I invite you, find an old jacket or item that you once bought and it fell apart before you expected it to do so. Don't throw it out. Keep it. Let it hang on the side of a rack in your closet and let it be a reminder to you 
not to invest in things that will not last. Aim your heart and your money towards your everlasting joy.